0: Hey everyone, just a reminder that this show is not legal advice, trading advice, financial advice, or personal advice. Enjoy the show and thank you very much. Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, this is Matthew Aaron and we talk about Rari's on Mars, Lambos on the moon, and then we get excited and we go to our exchanges and we buy our altcoins, And we log into Coinbase and we buy our Bitcoin, our Ethereum, our Litecoin, or our Bcash. And we don't know how they work. I don't know. Well, I mean, I didn't know until I talked to the co-founder and CTO of Bootstrap Legal, Dan Rice. And Dan is going to be on the show today to tell us exactly how centralized and decentralized exchanges work. Now, Dan has an interesting backstory because he actually tried to build an exchange Back in 2014. So please enjoy this interview with Dan Rice. It's a long one. We wanted to be thorough. We wanted to give you all the information we can. So, and I didn't want to turn this into two parts. So please grab a snack, grab a beer. Hope you're on a long drive to wherever you're going or a long subway ride and enjoy this interview. But before that, please go to Crypto101podcast.com. That's Crypto101podcast.com. There you can find our socials, our Twitter, our Instagram, our Facebook. Our Facebook group is over 3,000 people right now of people who want to help you get into cryptocurrency and be successful. There's no spam. There's no harassment. Just a lot of love and a lot of good conversation with a lot of good people. You also can find us on iTunes. Subscribe to us. Leave us a comment. We are approaching 1 million downloads. So please enter the contest. You'll find it on our Facebook page. You can win maybe some Litecoin, some Virium, or a coin. Also, go to our Patreon page. On our Patreon page, you can join the $5 Rise on Mars level. There you have access to our rants and commentaries, content that other people don't have access to, or content that is released weeks or months before everybody else gets it. The Patreons support Crypto 101. They're supporting the servers, the subscription services we need to make this go. So thank you very much to the Patreons, and enjoy this episode of Crypto 101. I learned a lot, and I hope you do too. All right, Dan, thank you very much for coming on the show, and welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Dan, if you wouldn't mind, could you please just briefly introduce yourself, who you are, where you're from, and we'll go from there.
1: Sure. Yeah, so my name is Dan Rice. I am Chief Technology Officer for... Uh, bootstrap legal and i know that uh prior uh my uh, co-founder and ceo was on your program too so yeah so basically we're we're a company that got started with focusing on democratizing uh, access to legal services and initially we uh the company was focused on uh just helping people get involved in crowdfunding complete applications for crowdfunding and that kind of thing But um, the ICO space last year kind of took the world by storm. And really for us, and this is where I really got involved with Amy and and the Bootstrap Legal Project, was that blockchain is really the place where you're going to get the the most efficiency in legal services in the future. And so we just realized that's the place where we really want to be as a company in the future. And, And that's kind of Uh, What brings us to where we are now, which is focusing on dispute resolution services for smart contracts. My background, I'm a computer engineer by trade, and I've been working as a CTO and VP of engineering for uh, about the last five years in those kind of roles. And a prior company I was working for is called Totem Risk. They do risk management and analytics for traditional investment products. So, yeah, I kind of was there since the beginning at that company and worked there as the CTO for a few years. But uh, I also started in that time a group called the Bitcoin Developers Los Angeles. That I started in 2014 because blockchain was all I could really think about. Bitcoin, blockchain, smart contracts, all those kind of things really piqued my interest because I could see a future decentralized world that could have a lot of efficiencies and benefits. And um, so I just was focusing on that in all my free time, basically. So
0: you were a Bitcoin developer back in the day.
1: What our group was set up to do is, I, I mean, I I was involved as a developer only, like not like technically involved in the core project, but just doing projects in the Bitcoin development space. Myself, I started a project called called CoinAuth because I was interested in using potentially using um, Bitcoins to authenticate you using ECDSA signatures to be able to log into websites like. One of the things that's funny is that the Bitcoin core technology is not something that Bitcoin invented, is that there are actually better ways to do authentication for access than we're using today, like we use passwords online for different websites. And Bitcoin uses uh, ECDSA signatures to manage their authentication for uh, proving that you own a certain coin. And... I realized that that technology, which Bitcoin didn't invent, but it's it's a better technology for online authentication. Because the cool part about it is is you could use it to log on to a website and you never have to reveal your password. Mm -hmm. You can prove that you have the password. And so the cool part about that is even uh, someone who is watching the conversation between you and the server wouldn't be able to get your password because you never sent it. You just sent proof that you have it, basically.
0: This is a one-on-one show. So when we say acronyms, we have to figure out what they mean. What is EC, Is it ECSA?
1: It's uh, called ECDSA, but it's called Elliptical Curve Digital Signature Algorithm. But it's, it's just a type of cryptography that's based on elliptical curves. And it's useful in certain scenarios, including in Bitcoin. And you don't really have to know the details of how it works, but what it allows you to do, one of the things it allows you to do is that you can, like the way that the Bitcoin network works is without ever publishing your quote-unquote password, which Mm. is your private key, you can apply a signature to a set of data that says, I actually signed this, and I can give you a public key that you can look at for my address. And you can use that public key, and from that public key, you can actually prove that I am the one who uh, signed this. So you can think of it similar to like a traditional you know, check signing like you do with uh, bank checks. Right. Uh, but instead of being a, a handwritten signature where you have to get some kind of like handwriting professional in to verify if you actually did sign that, um, it's mathematically provable with a digital signature that you were the one who signed it if you, if you have a, a public key. When you go back to the check signing case is that Obviously, you can forge a check signature relatively easily. We know that people can copy other people's handwriting, and then you got to get a handwriting expert in to really decide in a courtroom if this is really your signature. But in the case of digital signatures, ECDSA signatures that Bitcoin uses, it is irrefutable if, if that signature is yours or not, and it's just a simple calculation to check if you actually did sign it.
0: That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Hey, where are you from, by the way?
1: I'm actually from Silicon Valley. Uh, that's where I uh, grew up, and I got a degree in computer engineering, on again, in California on the Central Coast. I guess I because Silicon Valley was so close to home for me, I decided when I went to get a job that I would move to LA, and so I've kind of stayed in that area, and that's where Bootstrap Legal is located.
0: Well, again, thank you for coming on the show. The focus of our conversation today is how exchanges work. So, we are all using exchanges. Some of us hop on to Coinbase or GDAX as our first stop. Maybe some people are using Gemini as our first stop. Some people go and they sign up for Bittrex to get some of their altcoins. And some people really just want to get those really specific new low market cap altcoins and they go to Cryptopia. But you know what? When we set up our accounts and we buy our Bitcoin and we send it over there and we buy our our Virium or our Vertcoin or our Bootstrap leak Gold coin or whatever coin is going to be on <laughs> Bittrex. We don't know what happens after that. So could could we walk through, first, what is an exchange?
1: Awesome question, awesome topic for me, just because uh, when you suggested it, actually, it's funny. When I first got involved in uh, the space in early 2014, I started building an exchange.
2: Oh, really? Because at the
1: time, the one that was really popular was called Mount Gox. And uh, that one ended up, uh, first of all, before it even completely crashed down because the money was gone, that's another historical story about Bitcoin is that everyone who had their money in Mt. Gox lost it or Mm -hmm. most of it, at least the money was gone. But before that even happened, the exchange was having horrible performance problems where it couldn't keep up with the orders that were coming in because it was kind of built at a time when Bitcoin wasn't very popular and it was really the only cryptocurrency that was highly traded initially, but... um, Hashtag Coinbase, hashtag Poloniex. So at the time, it just, it was starting to have problems running, and so I thought, we got to build an exchange that really has high performance, so I started building one uh, for that, but then um, the market kind of crashed, so I ended up, (laughs) and and Coinbase came out and stuff like that, so it got better over time. I never finished that, but um, to talk about what an exchange is... Essentially, is an exchange where you can exchange one type of currency for another, and that could be cryptocurrency to another cryptocurrency. It also could be uh, a traditional currency like a U.S. dollar currency, a fiat currency, the you know the euro. Probably, like in the case of Coinbase, you use the currency that's local to where you are, and you're buying uh, bitcoins for dollars or ether for dollars, or you're trading them back, and you're going from. Ether two dollars or bitcoins two dollars, mm-hmm. and that's essentially what an exchange is. And it's actually a very interesting and important part of the ecosystem. It's because it's the first thing that people experience if they want to get into cryptocurrency. You can't right. get in without buying them, so that's usually how people do it.
0: I just want to ask a question about Mt. gox and their scaling issues. And I and this is not the general direction that I want to go. So we're gonna to have to go back a little bit after I ask this question. <laughs> But why did that – why did you say that and why did that bring up a, a, a red flag for you? Because people and all the exchanges right now are having this problem, lag. They have to shut down for yep. registration. They cannot keep up with the orders. Their Bitcoin is, is in limbo in the ether somewhere for days <laughs> so, what, what happened with Mt. Gox and how, how does that compare to Coinbase and these other exchanges right now?
1: First of all, I think that at the time, I think the thought around the lag existing on Mt. Gox, like I said, this is, I mean, Twitter had a lot of that lag when it first launched, right? Because anytime you have a platform, it suddenly becomes extremely popular. Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is that engineering systems to scale actually cost money, and you're not going to spend that money when you don't have nearly you know it's it doesn't make sense to scale a website to handle a million users when you only have ten users. And <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the problem that you have in uh, the startup space in general is that you're generally looking for this major growth spurt for your company, and that's what how you really become successful as a startup. But you can only justify preparing yourself for so much growth when you're not seeing the growth and mm-hmm. so in the case of twitter they just couldn't keep up with the growth and i think the same thing happened with mount gox basically mount gox was the first gen exchange it was actually i think originally coded by jed mccaleb who started ripple and stellar later oh, no, shit. but um okay. i think wrote it in php from what i know keep in mind this was this was a very experimental thing bitcoin in right. general was very new and everything so right. it was like I, I really like his approach, which was, I'm just going to build something and I'm going to get it running,
2: right? And that's yep. kind
1: of where you go with any startup. With Twitter was the same thing. They just put up a server and said, hey, we have this thing where you can send these tweets. And suddenly it took <laughs> off. And that's what happened with uh, Mt. Gox, essentially. And when that happened, it just wasn't ready for the scale. It wasn't really, you know, handling that many users wasn't really thought about. And so I think what it pointed to me and what people were saying at the time is, wow, this is like so amateur. If you compare it to the traditional stock markets that we have all over the world they can handle way more scale and all that kind of stuff but that's because the budgets were totally different you know we're talking about bitcoin had a market cap of i don't know probably under 100 million dollars at the time or way less actually when he started it right so he was just a little hobby project for a guy working on by himself on it you know kind of thing and I mean, can you imagine now Nasdaq uh, using a technology that was built by one guy in his garage in his <laughs> off hours or whatever? That's True. basically yeah. where Bitcoin was at at the time. And I think what you're seeing now with uh, Coinbase and with all the exchanges is it's a sign of uh, you know massive growth in the space. They couldn't justify the spending to architect out. And it's also really hard to test for that type of scale. As an engineer, I can say you know, you can throw extra load at your servers to say, Oh look, we could handle ten times more users than we have right now and it will automatically scale up for that. But there's always weird edge cases you don't think about, like, oh wait, but our sign up process didn't scale as well as we thought it would. There the rest of the system can handle it, but the sign up process can't or or whatever. There's just different points in the system that may break down that you didn't think about. And so until you achieve that kind of growth, then you go, oh, we got, you know, you got a hair on fire problem and you have to go solve it. So right. Coinbase, I, I really, from what I know about it, I don't think there's anything, It's I don't think it's a sign necessarily that they've lost people's money or they're being malicious and shutting it off at key points. I think the reason why there's a correlation between Coinbase shutting down and like, oh, the market dropped. Ten percent, and now Coinbase is down, and people are like, "That's not a coincidence; it's a conspiracy." You know, they don't want people to sell, but I think it's just there are a lot of people trying to log on at that moment, and so they start having problems. You know, um, but let's let's be honest
0: here, though. I mean, if 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 every time Bitcoin drops ten to twenty or thirty percent, and their their servers go down, eyebrows or should be raised, honestly?
1: <laughs> I don't think it's every time, though. I think, you know what I think about uh, as a technology person, what I think about, the, this is like the sound man problem. The, I, I used to work sound mixers and uh, like at events sometimes for people just for fun.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: the thing that they always say is, no one ever notices the sound man until he does something wrong. If, if you're this perfect sound man, no one ever even credits you or knows you're there. It's, as soon okay, as there's true, some high yes. feedback or something. It's like, "What's up with that?" So I think that's happening yep. with Coinbase like, you know, if everything is running smoothly, it's like, "Yeah, that's how it should be." And behind the scenes, there's 30 engineers that are like rushing around to keep everything running and, you know, doing changes as fast as they can. And you're just going, oh, it's normal, no, nothing to see here. And then suddenly it goes down. It's like, what are they doing? Right. So that's what I don't think. I don't think they're, and I also don't think that they're incompetent because they haven't lost anyone's thing about Coinbase is they actually haven't really been hacked and they've been around for a few years. They've actually kind of like beat the, the hacking game, which is impressive that there hasn't been any huge uh, Coinbase hack in all this time. And it, it says to me that they take security very seriously, which is something that's, unprecedentedly important in this space compared to anything we've seen before. And this so. is the
0: point where we knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so well, I want you know to move to the next question, though.
1: Okay, go ahead. So
0: I have my Bitcoin. I bought it on Coinbase. I send it over to Bitrex. let's just say. For example, I have my Bitcoin yes. in my Bitrex. and then it's just sitting in there. How does it work in general? Then I want to say I want to buy my Litecoin, or if I want to buy my Vertcoin, or if I want to buy my Bootstrap Legal Coin. What mm-hmm. what happens then? And then if I'm keeping in my exchange, where does it where is it going? Is it just there? And who has my coins? And if it gets hacked, what are they hacking? What are they taking? Sorry, great lots, question. Lots of, lots of questions at once, but I think they all just lead into each other.
1: Yeah. So, And this is a big misconception in the space that I've spent a lot of time online debunking for people, actually. So it's it's an interesting topic to talk about. So we're talking about the general concept. Before we go on, we're talking about um, centralized exchanges. And we can talk about decentralized exchanges that are coming online uh, later on. But right now, all the exchanges you mentioned, we're talking about centralized exchanges. And so um, the reason why I want to make that distinction is because they do function very differently. And there'll be different properties associated with them. So um, in the case that you gave, you have some, first of all, let's start with Coinbase. So you purchase some Bitcoins and they're sitting in your Coinbase account. Exactly. So what that really means, and when you see a balance sitting in Coinbase, unless you're using their special vault technology or whatever, but if it's just sitting in your GDAX account, sitting in your Coinbase account, one of the two, then what it looks like in the back-end is that Coinbase has private keys to your funds. If you don't have the private keys, then you don't really control the bitcoins. This is is a statement that is often made in the space. So what that means is Coinbase is holding a whole bunch of cryptocurrency, and they may be holding more than anyone else in the world, in fact, but it's just hard to know because they can hold them in uh, different accounts. But probably one of the exchanges in the world is holding the most cryptocurrency. Maybe it's Bitfinex or something, but there's a lot of large exchanges because they have they have this concentrated um, amount of funds. Because everyone who deposits coins into their account, it basically all goes into one giant fund that they have. So, picture 100 people send coins to Coinbase. They now are 100 people buy coins on Coinbase. If they're sitting in their Coinbase account. They're all sitting in one giant fund together. The added thing that Coinbase has, and any exchange would have, is they have a list in a regular database, not on the blockchain, just like a regular website that says, this is how many every person in the the system has. Mm. And hopefully for them, the number that's listed in that database matches up to how many they actually have. Okay, so That's where you get into problems. The idea is that they keep track of all the Bitcoins and who actually owns them, but there's really nothing on the bitcoins themselves that say this one is, you know, Matthew's, this is Dan's. Like okay. it's not like that. Basically, they're just all sitting together and when you go and say, Hey, I want you to send them to Bittrex. So what happens is there's no particular bitcoins that are assigned to you, but they just go, Okay, we have this stash of a thousand bitcoins, let's say. He wants to send three of them that are his to this other place. So let's just take three off our stack, doesn't matter which ones, and we're gonna send them over to Bittrex at this address that he gave us. And they don't even necessarily know it's Bittrex, they just know you've given them this address and they're gonna send it. At the same time that they send those real bitcoins, yes, they're gonna go in their database, which is just a regular server database, and they're gonna say, okay, subtract three bitcoins from his account balance. Mm. So when you're logged into the interface at Coinbase and you're seeing, oh, this is my balance, there's nothing blockchain related happening there. It's all just a traditional, it's just like a bank they just have a ledger that shows mm-hmm. all of your transactions and they're just showing you what's in their database
2: essentially, which
1: is a, a record. So, um, getting to Bitrex, it's kind of an interesting case because then in, in that case, they don't even have us dollars on their platform. I guess they, do they have USD tether?
2: Yeah, they have something tether.
1: like that. I even, okay. So they have tether, which functions somewhat similar to the us dollar, but we can definitely talk about that too. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> But in general, um, when you send your bitcoins to Bittrex, they have a giant pool of bitcoins. Your bitcoins get added to their giant pool of bitcoins and they see where it came from. And it's a particular address they assign just to your account. So that, that address that you sent to, no one else on their system has that address in their, reg- again, their regular database. It says, Hey, if we get any bitcoins from this particular address and this is where they're deposited to, that means they came from Matthew. Because he's the only one we gave this address to send to. Every person has a separate one. So that's how they know who's sending them. But then they probably take them from that address. And they go, okay, he sent us some coins. And they send them off to a shared pool. Or they just keep track in their database of how many you sent. And they have different means of how they want to separate them and store them, which is totally separate once you send them to that address. Mm -hmm. But uh, just uh, deposit it to your account. And then they update their database to show that you sent X amount in.
0: Okay, so now I have my Bitcoin from my Coinbase. They took off their big mound of Bitcoin stash. I, 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 in my mind, I just get a Scrooge McDuck vault, big pile of gold vision in my head. And they got, you got um, Brian Armstrong, I think his name is, just jumping through these Bitcoins in his vault. Exactly. He's just swimming. So, so I send this over to Bittrex. Bittrex then puts it in their big pile. And we have another Scrooge yeah. McDuck swimming around in their Bitcoins. Then they just say, okay, this came from Matthew. Everything comes from Matthew. That comes from this address. Matthew has now credited his Bitcoin. And yeah. now I want to buy my altcoin. What happens right. now?
1: Now you're talking about putting uh, trading pairs on the exchange. or you know. It, so first of all, whatever you want to buy has to have a trading pair on that site with uh, whatever else you want to buy. So what I mean by that is if you're holding Bitcoins because that's what you deposited into the exchange, because you can deposit, I think on Bittrex, there's like a hundred different coins you can deposit into Bittrex,
2: different
1: kinds. Exactly,
0: but there's only there's three trading pairs, F, Bit, and uh, USDT.
1: So that's an interesting point because say you wanted to buy um, Vertcoin, and you actually sent them Litecoin, But they don't have litecoin as a trading pair on their site well you actually need to trade into bitcoins from your litecoins first in order to get get bitcoin so then you can can actually trade into vertcoin the reason you have to do that is because there's no active trading pair what you're doing there is bittrex doesn't really create the orders unless they're doing something weird in general they're not the ones putting orders on their exchange so what happens is if you want to buy vertcoin and you have bitcoins essentially what you're looking for is someone else who wants to sell vert coins and that's what all the orders are that you see on the exchange all the order book that you can go in and see as is, is called shows all the people who are trying to sell vert coins for bitcoins and how what price they're willing to let them go at so there's right. something called a limit order which is similar to how stock works. If you ever use the stock account, I think you're familiar with how this works, obviously. For the for the listeners, you can put in an order that wouldn't necessarily execute at the current price because you want to buy it for cheaper than the current rate that people are willing to sell it for or whatever. And what happens when you do that, it's called putting in an order. That order can sit there for X amount of time. And it just means that you're in the order book. And if at any time in the future, people are willing to sell for the price that you're actually trying to buy for then your order will execute automatically even if you're not uh, online at the time so you can kind of set it up and walk away say okay i'm willing to pay this much at a later time
0: if you guys want to know more about limit orders and buy orders and stop losses and stop orders and all that stuff go to the episode the crypto 101 episode trading strategies and terminology
1: so when the order actually goes through the important thing to note is that no cryptocurrency is moving anywhere because again this exchange, they have all these piles of cryptocurrency that they're holding, all under their own accounts, basically. So what happens is, whatever's for sale and whatever the other person wants to buy, there's there's an exchange that happens there. So you're you're buying Vertcoins with Bitcoins. Well, that other person's trying to buy Bitcoins with Vertcoins. So in the database again of the site, it's just a swap, and essentially the records get updated to say you you got these Vertcoins and the other person. Uh, lost their vert coins and you lost some bitcoins and the other person gained some bitcoins yeah. so it's just numbers moving around and a good exchange too would be able to track in their system to make sure that when things like that happen have a secondary verification to say okay the total that we're holding didn't change in the database because right we just moved something from here to here but the totals should add up to the same and then they can go to the blockchain and they can say does this match how many we're actually holding in our giant pile and if it does then they know they haven't made any errors or accidentally lost anything.
0: What would a decentralized exchange do in this instance?
1: Decentralized exchanges are a whole different beast. Should, should, should we do that different,
0: t- tackle that separately or should we do it now? What do you think?
1: No, I think now is a good time to talk about that. We're, I mean, what we just described would be fundamentally different with a decentralized exchange.
2: All right.
0: Bring so, it.
1: All right so let's go back to Mt. Gox for a second okay. and uh, let's talk about what happened there. So in the case of Mt. Gox, we're talking about this giant pile of cryptocurrency that's sitting. We're just trusting it's actually sitting over here. Mm -hmm. And something that's happened in banking a lot of times is uh, something called running a fractional reserve. And Mm -hmm. that's where it's actually legal in in, uh, a lot of uh, countries, most of the world, uh, for banks to do this. And the way it works is that the bank has a balance that says, hey, you have X number of dollars in your account. But the funny thing is that the bank doesn't actually have that money. Right. And so if everyone were to do what's called a run on a bank, they go run to the bank and they ask for their money. Well, the bank's like suddenly gonna say, we actually don't have the money. In. And that happened during the real estate collapse in 2009. And that's why we have uh, FDIC insurance and that kind of stuff because the government has decided it's okay for banks to not have the money that they're supposed to have essentially. So the funny thing with cryptocurrency is the exact same thing can happen, and it's going to be invisible to you as a user. So
2: right.
1: if that centralized exchange says, hey, I think we're going to go uh, spend all this money, all this cryptocurrency, we're going to go sell it on Coinbase, and uh, we're not going to tell anybody, and they're not even going to know what's happening because they just are trading little IOUs, basically, in the system that we have in our database. Right. Well, what happened with Mt. Gox is at a certain point, people started trying to withdraw their money in Bitcoins, and Mt. Gox said, oh, we're having withdrawal problems. That's the first thing they did. They didn't actually say they'd lost anything. They are just like, just hold on a minute. Well, mm. this was very early in the space. They actually said this for months. They're having problems, and they wouldn't let anyone take their Bitcoins out. So there was this problem in the system, and people were still saying, well, maybe they didn't lose them because they're giving all these excuses and stuff. Well, of course, eventually it came out that they had lost a lot of the Bitcoins, or they didn't know where they were. But they waited several months to tell people. And they were even still taking deposits Stop. during that time. This is the crazy part. A lot of people ended up losing Bitcoins that, again, they thought they had because they logged into the interface and it said, I have 100 Bitcoins. And they're like, well, I'm good because right. Bitcoin's safe. It can't get hacked. Well, guess what? Bitcoin is, can't get hacked in general as a system, where it's very unlikely that it would happen. But the exchange can get hacked. But the exchange is just like any other website. Right. And so... They got hacked and their private keys got hacked. We don't know exactly what happened. We have a lot of forensic information now, but the money was gone. That's where decentralized exchanges come in because people said, hey, there's this thing called counterparty risk. And counterparty risk is the risk that you carry when you let someone else hold your Bitcoins for you. It's it's a traditional concept where you're giving someone else your assets and you're hoping that they won't lose those assets. Well. If you're giving all your assets to an exchange, they may lose them. In fact, because of the unregulated nature of Bitcoin, there may be actually, or in cryptocurrency in general, there may be no one even looking into whether or not they have done anything weird. There's no one auditing their accounts. There's nothing like that happening. But, so it's it's a wild west in that way, and there's pluses and minuses to that. But anyway, um, decentralized exchange is kind of looking at Bitcoin and saying, okay. Bitcoin, if you hold the keys yourself, it's provably secure. No one can steal those for you unless they get your private keys or hack you somehow, particularly to get your private keys, but the protocol is protected. Why can't we make exchanges happen in a way in cryptocurrency that you wouldn't actually be able to hack it and you never have to actually give your money to anybody? In any financial, almost any financial situation, let's say I'm doing a contract with you to buy a house at a certain point, I've got to give you the money and you have to give me the keys to the house. Right. And there's this intermediate time where it's like, well, do I hand you the money first or do you hand me, are we gonna do one <laughs> in one hand and one in the other? Right, and if there's three, that, two, most, one. Yeah, and if I ever have the keys and the money in my hand, maybe I just won't let them go. Right. You know, and There's something called atomic swaps that come <laughs> into place there. And the idea of an atomic, atomic is a concept in software that's like one instruction basically means that you're combining two things into one. And so the idea there is, can we make an exchange between two cryptocurrencies in a way that they happen at the exact same moment such Mm. that when I go to buy that Vertcoin and you're going to get your Bitcoins, there's no point where I can decide not to give you the Bitcoins but still get the Vertcoins because it actually happens at the exact same moment in like the same instruction such Mm. that. They can't be separated. Right. And you, there's no way you can trick the system. So that's where decentralized exchanges come into play, especially on the Ethereum network within the smart contracting system that's there now with all the ERC20 tokens, which ERC20 is a token standard that has to do with a lot of the ICOs. It's basically a standard way to build a token,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: which a lot of the, the coins that are out there are ERC20 tokens um, for ICOs right now. But the reason why they all want to use the same protocol and use the standard is because then they can be supported by these decentralized exchanges.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: when you have a decentralized exchange, first of all, listing is a big thing. If you want to get listed on a platform. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing
3: better technologies. We keep moving forward.
1: Now it's like you got to go bag. If you're an ICO and you're like, Oh, I really want our coins to like be available right. to people, you got to go bag Bittrex and say, You have to go hey, bag
0: Bittrex, pay you, a shit ton of money.
1: Please, please, yeah, can you please put us on your platform? Because we want people to be able to buy and sell our tokens. And Bittrex is getting a thousand calls a day about that. So right. the idea of a decentralized exchange is that you don't need permission because if you support this protocol without the exchange even knowing anything about your token, it can allow people to trade and have an exchange of your tokens with other tokens on the network without on the network beyond being able to exchange with others in a way that doesn't, that doesn't require you to be listed. You also have a way that you can actually buy and sell your tokens without ever taking it, ever sending them to anyone else. Like in a traditional centralized exchange, you give these coins to someone else and you hope they don't steal them. Well, a decentralized exchange the actual exchange happens in this trustless way now the downside to that is that on the decentralized exchange you actually incur network fees so if you think about ethereum i think right now a transaction a simple transaction on the ethereum network costs about a dollar right so if you wanted to exchange one one uh, cryptocurrency or one, one token for another on a decentralized exchange on top of Ethereum, well, that's a network transfer. And therefore, you're probably paying some network fees to run these smart contracts that exist around it. The benefit of it is obviously that you're not going to have any risk of losing your tokens because of this atomic swap con- concept that we talked about, where there's really no moment where... You can lose it, and someone can steal your money. it's a it's a it's a trustless exchange, it's the concept behind it.
0: I have a question about that part then. Everybody says, do not keep your coins in an exchange. Don't keep it in there. Put it in a wallet. Is it safer to keep it in a decentralized exchange?
1: Well, actually, in the case of a decentralized exchange, yeah, I don't know what the concept would be around even holding your coins in a decentralized exchange, but if there might be somewhere you have to send your coins to a a certain smart contract, and in that case, there should be, if it's coded correctly, there shouldn't be any risk holding your coins inside of a decentralized exchange if there is some way of doing that essentially there because there would be no risk of anyone being able to pull the money out now that being said some of these decentralized quote-unquote exchanges are not completely decentralized and i know just in the last month there was a problem with ether delta where there was a hack to something kind of secondary to the main smart contract mm-hmm. and I believe that some people's money was actually stolen. So, I think I would caution anyone who thinks they're using decentralized exchanges to uh, do some research about how decentralized they really are, because it's a term that's being thrown around, and it's not always as foolproof as you may think. Because there are other issues that you can occur that can occur besides change walking away with your money. For example, there can be a bug in the decentralized exchange smart contract. That can make you lose your money. If you look at what happened with parity wallet last year, there was a issue where there was a bug in their contract and it actually locked up over a hundred million dollars, right. Not because anyone was being malicious, but right. because there was a bug in the contract. right. So there's still a risk involved. It's a different risk. It's a risk about the reliability of the system you're using. if you if you aren't able to read the code yourself, you probably I wouldn't suggest using a decentralized exchange until you've definitely talked to a lot of other people who have and who you think know a lot about it and have had a good experience, especially if you're not going to be able to read the code yourself because there's also a lot of scams out there and somebody could say, oh, this is a decentralized exchange. Send your money here. And it's actually not. It's, a, it's their personal payment address or my, whatever.
0: My My next question about this then is, okay, so – We have centralized exchanges. We know how we get more money in there, what they do, how we trade. We have decentralized exchanges. We know about the swapping ERC20 token and how that's going to work in the future with these decentralized exchanges. A couple are coming out this year that I'm really excited about. But now we have a problem. Are my coins insured by any of these companies? And the second of all is, it seems like there's a lot of Concern with these exchanges is this really the future, or shouldn't I just keep my money in fiat and keep it in a bank? Good
1: question. So, well, I mean, the last uh, company I worked for before I worked at Bootstrap Legal was a company that analyzed risk of stock portfolios. So I spent a lot of time thinking about risk and risk. You know, the saying as the saying goes, "No risk, no reward." If you're getting into this space, even as someone um, who is highly technical, I feel that there is a risk that I could lose my money for various reasons. First of all, the value of cryptocurrency could change drastically in the negative direction. But there's also a chance in a lot of cases of losing money due to a bug or so many other things. So insurance is a very good question because in the Mt. Gox era, that really didn't exist. But Coinbase, I know they, they insure Uh, I believe 100% of the deposits that are sitting on their exchange, the cryptocurrency deposits. And then uh, I think Circle, that company, had purchased insurance when they were hot and working in that space. And I know Gemini also has insurance in the United States. So I think that's a real factor in this space because if you're trusting your money with somebody, then it's nice to know that they can't walk away with it or if they do, that you're going to be compensated for that. And the companies that have insured—it's important to look at who provided the insurance because right. if you look in the insurance industry, uh, if you know you can go g- give some someone insurance for whatever, but uh, you can also file for bankruptcy when that claim comes in. <laughs>
2: yeah, right. So exactly. uh,
1: these are some—I know in the case of Coinbase and Gemini—they're really legitimate insurance companies that aren't going anywhere. Most likely, have been around for a long time and have made a. a a decision to insure their deposits because they've, I'm sure, audited their systems and understand how they're storing the assets, etc. I definitely think you should look into insurance that exchanges are carrying. And I would guess that most of these altcoin exchanges do not have insurance. And if you're new to the space, you may not realize that there have been exchanges that have come and gone because they've lost everyone's money. So this would not be a Surprise if one did even today. Um, you know, there's a company called Cripsy that was around for a couple years, and they were kind of one of the biggest altcoin exchanges for a while, and then um, they kind of lost everyone's money, (laughs) so or or they took everybody's money, uh, or or they that's true, or they but the story is uh different depending on who you ask,
0: of course. Of course, do you know if there's any insurance that somebody that personally. They can get on their cryptocurrency. Can I go out to my state firm and say, I want to insure my crypto?
1: I have talked to insurance agents about this uh, semi-recently and talked to people in the insurance space about it. And I think the biggest problem right now with that concept is there's nothing to stop you from going out and getting insurance. So here's, here's the thing about cryptocurrency is it's called a bearer asset. And a bearer asset is something that by holding it, you are the owner of it. So there used to be something called bearer bonds that I think are pretty uncommon today. Mm -hmm. But the idea would be if you have this piece of paper has an ID number to a bond on it, then you are the rightful owner of that bond. And you could go give that paper to someone else and then they become the owner. So cryptocurrency is just like that. There's really no concept of ownership even over private keys. It's just, if you have these private keys, then you are therefore the owner. And the funny thing about private keys is you don't have to be the sole owner. There's good and bad ways to do things, but you could go out and give the same private keys to five of your friends. And you could all together kind of own a bunch of cryptocurrency. Now, of course, the problem with that is any one of those people could liquidate the account, but if it were people you trust or whatever, then um, could share private keys. And and if so who really owns those coins? That's that's a valid question. And because it's a bearer asset, um, really no one in particular. You just kind of collectively own it.
0: So what are other so examples of bearer assets then?
1: I think when I think of bearer assets, I think of things in the real world that you, you know, if you have um, an apple that you just bought at the grocery store and you're standing out in front of the store with it. I don't know if it's technically a bearer asset, but in practicality it is. If I set that apple down on the side of the street and someone else walks over and picks it up, then they become the owner of that Apple, pretty mm-hmm. much. Exactly. So I think a lot, we deal we deal with bear assets a lot in the real world, but in the financial world, we tend to not. We tend to trade stocks on the stock market where if I lose my password to the system, I can just get access again and all of the current, everything that I owned is still there because there's records that say, My identity is linked to the ownership of these and there's no, you know, issue where someone else would suddenly say it's theirs or something like that. There's records, just a different type of asset. So cryptocurrency is fundamentally a bearer asset and that has a lot of ramifications. Sorry, what was the original question again? Because I think that was...
0: Can I get insurance? or It was actually more of like a supplemental oh, right. question. But can I get insurance from my State Farm or Prudential to cover my cryptocurrency?
1: I think the issue there for State Farm and, uh, and any other insurance company is because it's a bear asset, you can easily get insurance on it and then call them the next day and say that you lost it. <laughs> if you do that, there's really not any way for them to know what happened. Because these addresses are pseudo-anonymous, you could say you lost the key, you could say you sent them, or, you know, or someone stole them and they went to this other address. In fact, we've seen this with exchanges, like we are just talking about with Cripsy, where money is gone and there's differing stories. There's It was hacked and it got sent to this other account. And then someone else saying it wasn't hacked, the owner transferred it to a personal account.
2: Right. And
1: because they're pseudo-anonymous, we don't know what really happened. So right. I think the, the challenge for insurance companies presently is that they're not really they're trying to figure it out and definitely for large exchanges they have but for the personal user there's a lot of risk for them to take in ensuring their um, cryptocurrency and probably the only way they'd be willing to do it is if they could hold them for you which I don't think they want to do but or if you if they knew that you had given them to someone as a custodian and so kind of where you end up is if you want insurance, then go put your coins onto Coinbase. I'm not recommending doing that necessarily, but that you you get insurance as a personal user that way because Coinbase has in their terms that if they lose your coins, that you will be refunded for the current value or something like that.
0: Are you are you sure of that? By the way, because I just did an episode on Gemini, and I know that the FDIC insures the 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 fiat that you have in Gemini. And I know that the FDIC insures the fiat that you have in Coinbase, but are we sure about the cryptocurrency? Because I, I've actually heard both.
1: To my knowledge, I'm not I'm not necessarily the expert on this, but I know at one point they did have it. And so there's the FDIC part of it for the U.S. dollars, and then they had actually gone out and purchased insurance on the cryptocurrency assets that they had as a separate piece to that. That is that is and what I now, heard
0: before too, and I, and now recently I've been hearing opposite. So I'm going to have to look more into that.
1: A good place to look for that and where I've read about it before, if you just go straight to their terms of service, like their, you know, kind of boring legalese text, they'll usually provide that information. See, I'm looking, they actually have a page where they talk about the insurance that they have. Yes, So they say right here on their digital currency insurance page, it says Coinbase prioritizes the security of our customers' funds. All digital currency that Coinbase holds online is insured. So online, that's a specific thing that they're saying there.
2: Mm. They say,
1: and then they say later, Coinbase holds less than 2% of the customer funds online. So okay. they're they're only insuring a small amount of the cryptocurrency they have, and you're trusting them that that is true. But the general concept around that is, that we haven't really talked about, is hot wallets and cold wallets. Mm. And Coinbase practices that concept. The idea is that even if they were to get hacked, most of their assets are not stored online in any way. They're stored in vaults or whatever the private keys are, such that they wouldn't lose all that much if they were to get hacked. They'd lose, according to this, less than 2% of the customer fund.
0: Right. So from a CTO's point of view, and I, I kind of want you to name drop a little bit here because everybody likes to tiptoe and don't want to hurt people's feelings, but what are the safest exchanges you feel and what are the least safe?
1: <laughs> I, so, you know, obviously, uh, when I read this question, uh, originally, when, when you you said you're going to ask me about this, I was like, well, I'm definitely going to give a political answer to that. But um, let me just give, because actually, the, the number one thing I was going to say, first of all, I want to say the difference between cybersecurity and the cryptocurrency space and almost everywhere else is generally the cybersecurity space functions on this idea that some intrusions are going to get into their system, mm-hmm. and they just want to detect those intrusions as soon as possible. Right. Now, cryptocurrency cannot function like that because if you if a, if there's even one intrusion that happens into an exchange, all of the funds could be stolen if the private keys are accessed. Now, there's obviously this hot and cold wallet concept I was talking about, where not all the funds are actually there at the time to be stolen. Right. But in general, the concept is you cannot have any intrusions into your system. Right. So that's a really high bar to set because the general concept in um, in cybersecurity. I just went to a, a cybersecurity summit in LA a, a couple weeks ago, and th- the general idea and the thing that everyone will get up and say, even up to and including military uh, personnel who have high security, will say, "You are going to get breached. It's just a matter of how you're going to recover from that." Right. Well if that happens in the cryptocurrency space, then a lot of cryptocurrency gets lost. Right. So it's just a very different realm. And that's why I would say that I don't necessarily put a lot of stake into the way that people act in the space to give any type of impression that they'll be the ones that won't get hacked or will get hacked. Hmm. And so going back to your prior question, I would say that the people that are your, your best bet going with, if you're going to actually trade, online is the ones that are insured because in order to get insured the insurance companies don't just go okay cool um, here's how much we want you to pay they actually have a long list of questions that they're going to ask and they're right. going to audit and say okay how are you storing your cryptocurrency okay do you have a list of people who are even allowed to access this bank vault do you keep a record of every person that, that does logs on to this system do you do this do that and by the time they're done They've laid out all the possible risk factors of what can go wrong and said, okay, we'll insure you, but you have to change this part of the system here because we want to know that you've done the best you can to stop any intrusion from happening.
2: Right. So, right.
1: insurance is a sign that they're kind of on the up and up and they have followed some level of regulation, as quote unquote, regulation, because they're having to. Uh, jump to a certain bar in order to satisfy that insurance company because that insurance company has a lot of money on the line. I would say Gemini and um, Coinbase based on this uh, post that I just read are insured for their hot wallet deposits. I'm not sure exactly what Gemini's insurance covers but probably something similar. I just tend to favor exchanges that have insurance for that reason. It indicates to me that there, someone was willing to put their money where their mouth was and assure them, and also was given privileged access to look at how they do things and said, okay, we're okay with this. Right. So that's the number one thing. I think if you look at any of the exchanges that don't accept U.S. dollar transfers, that's not a good sign for overall security, I would say. And the reason is that, mm. to me, it indicates that they are trying to escape regulation in certain ways. So in the United States, there's something called anti-money laundering and know-your-customer laws. Right. And I know in the last year, I've signed up for exchanges and they haven't even asked what my name was just for an email address and password. It indicates to me that they're trying to skirt the law in general. And if they're doing that, I would say that they might be doing that because it's expensive to follow regulation. It's very expensive to comply with anti-money laundering laws and, and know-your-customer laws. And as a general rule, something that I've seen in working in a lot of startups is that when you're cutting corners because you can't afford to handle regulations, and so you're like, oh, you know, we'll worry about that later, you might be saying the same thing about your security. Right. You might be saying, good point. we'll worry about that later. We'll, so I think just as a general feel, any of the exchanges that are not listing U.S. dollars, they're just using USDT, which is the Tether U.S. dollar backed coins supposedly, and they're just trading crypto pairs, you got to transfer Bitcoin into do exchanges, I would definitely not recommend leaving your cryptocurrency sitting on those exchanges,
2: hmm. because
1: A, they're probably not insured, which means if you leave your coins on there, and they're suddenly gone, just look at what happened with Bitfinex, they're probably not going to do anything to get your money back, or they're going to do something really weird that you're not going to be fully comfortable with. They could just completely up and disappear a lot of times, too, and that's right. what we saw with cryptocurrency.
0: Well, one of our favorite exchanges, everybody's favorite exchange, is Bitrex, And Bittrex just has Bitcoin, Ethereum, and USDT. They have claimed that they have never had any kind of security issues. Both the owners come from security backgrounds. Uh, one is from Microsoft Security. Yet they are doing what you say. They are just operating in the Bitcoin field. Yet they do practice a KYC to sign up. What do you think about that?
1: I just think that, I, I don't think that any centralized exchange is safe necessarily even coinbase and gemini so i just kind of fall back to the stance of saying fundamentally secrets online want to get out is what i would say and private keys are secrets
2: so <laughs> yeah.
1: they're very hard to protect and since it only takes one intrusion and let's think about what those types of intrusions are that an exchange could have yes there's the malicious actor that could just randomly be trying to illegally log onto their website and somehow hack in and get their funds. There's right. also the case of a employee who is, you know, potentially not even a programmer, someone who's, you know, working in the office doing something else. I don't want to name any particular roles <laughs> and, and insult those people, but they may not be the most computer savvy person. And that person could get an email that seems legitimate to them. They could open a file that then compromises their machine. Hmm. And that person could then be a part of an intrusion for someone who's again coming in to monitor and find those private keys that are around on the system. Right. You can also, and this this has been another thing that's happened with uh, some exchanges. We re, we we didn't talk about like the uh, shapeshifts of the world and that kind of stuff, which is a whole different type of exchange. In those cases, I think in shapeshift there was actually an issue where they kept losing cryptocurrency, and they finally figured out that it was one of their engineers. Stop. That <laughs> well, I I think there was a story about that ago and they finally they kept re-architecting their system for higher and higher security because they kept losing funds and finally they realized this guy we have on the engineering team is the only common thread between all these attacks and he was you know sending off money somewhere i believe so there's a human attack vector, and greed is a real thing in the world so i just i don't like believe that a cryptocurrency exchange can be hundred percent secure. And so and obviously none of the big exchanges believe they can be hundred percent secure. And that's why Coinbase is saying they score they store more than ninety eight percent of their customer funds in offline wallets. I mean, mm-hmm. who knows? That could be Brian Armstrong, like you mentioned, he has to go to a bank and like get some special um, ledger out of his safe deposit box, and then three other people have to do the same thing in different states and put in some multi-signature code to get money out or something. Like I don't know what their process is exactly, but it's you know ultimately. Human trust is a very difficult thing, especially when there's anonymity involved. I wouldn't leave your money on Bittrex just because if Bittrex does lose all the money, you're not going to have anyone to call to get that money back, and that's the thing. You probably want to be holding it yourself.
0: Right. If you don't mind, can we just go into some general questions really quick? Absolutely. I think that we covered everything with the, the exchanges. We, we know how we get money in. We know what they do with the with the funds. We know how they match the pairs. I think they were pretty thorough. Decentralized, centralized, insurance, where are my coins? We we know that now. So who is one person that you look up to in the crypto space?
1: The person who I looked up to, and I actually mentioned earlier in this uh, conversation, but I think the people who I look up to in the space are the doers. And when you (laughs) actually... I think we talked about this in our intro conversation before we started recording was that this is in some ways analogous to a gold rush. What's happening now, there's this whole new market being developed and something that's always talked about is in the gold rush, the people who made a lot of money were selling shovels and things like that. So I really appreciate the people in the space that are actually out doing things,
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: building things, making podcasts, doing different things just to bring life to the space. And I don't think that the main money to be made is necessarily in trading altcoins all day, that you might be able to make some, and you might, fortunes will be made and lost doing that, but I don't think that that's really true path to the success in this space, and I think it's much more interesting, so I, if you're actually building something, and when I look at Jed McCaleb, I think he's a very interesting and pivotal character in the space because he built one of the first exchanges, and then he actually started a company called Ripple that everyone knows and a lot of people hate, uh, in the space uh, because it's a different a different approach to cryptocurrency than right. Bitcoin, and and then started Stellar. So he's I just think he's an interesting guy because he's always out doing things and he's not even out really telling people about it. He's just doing interesting things, and right. so that's someone who I look up to. And the other person I think of like that is Dan Larimer. He started BitShares. He started Steemit and Steam and now he's uh, working on EOS. So I just really appreciate people who are not even asking for permission. They're just going out and building things. Just doing. Yeah. That's a good
0: answer, man. is the first good. time somebody, somebody's ever said that. And um, actually, I'd really like to know more about how BitShares works one of these days.
1: Another great conversation.
0: I, I, I bet it would be because I actually have it sitting right on my desktop. I, I have an account, but I have been reluctant because I haven't had time to look into it yet. So I'm, I'm curious. Maybe we have to sit down for a conversation. One day about that. What is one company you think is going to have the greatest impact in the crypto space?
1: For the present, I think it's going to continue to be exchanges that have the greatest impact because that's on-ramp cryptocurrency. And there's really, mining isn't really practical for everyone. So you have to buy in at some point and that's where exchanges come in. So Mm -hmm. I really think it's Coinbase. That's an easy answer because obviously we see how Coinbase's decisions affects the price of cryptocurrencies. It's true. But I I have a kind of a love-hate relationship with price of cryptocurrency because it shouldn't be the focus. There's really cool technology and human sociology things about cryptocurrency, and that's the reason why I got into it. Mm -hmm. But it does seem that every time there's a spike in price, you get a whole bunch of new people interested in the space, and I welcome those people in. So I think, you know, I just have this love-hate relationship with how much price traction we see in the space. And Coinbase plays a huge part in that. Um, I think they're they're a pretty friendly front to cryptocurrency, and they do have their own problems. But yeah, I would say uh, Coinbase and Gemini are two companies that I think are very interesting.
0: Crypto 101 is the most popular cryptocurrency podcast on iTunes these days, and we're very proud of that. But because of that, it's quite possible that the first podcast that somebody that's just getting into the space is going to listen to is this one with Dan Rice of Bootstrap Legal. What would you want them to know? What would be the first thing you would want them to know about the cryptocurrency space if this was their first stop?
1: I think the number one thing I'd want someone to know who's getting into the space is uh, be careful. And I think do your research, do your own research, because the thing that I've seen a lot of on Line lately on LinkedIn, even now it's starting to seep in there. Is just a lot of people who are trying to pump something in particular, and they're probably doing it because they have some economic incentive to do so. So do your own research and uh, be safe out there.
0: Right on, Dan. I, I really appreciate that answer, and I think that's actually the most popular answer that we have is do your own research. But it's really hard, you know, because there's so much news that contradicts each other out there. It's you hear one thing and then this next website you go to says the other. So it's very hard. How, how do you expect them or how do you recommend them to sift through all that information?
1: Well, I, the way I look at it is, is, again, going back to risk, is what are you risking? Are you getting into the space because you want to make money or you want to invest in cryptocurrency? That seems to be a common use case for getting into cryptocurrency. If that's your intent and just know that you're taking a high risk, don't invest more than you're willing to lose. All that kind of stuff obviously applies. But I think you probably research in accordance with how much you're investing. So if you're investing a very small amount of money, then, you know, I don't do much research before I bet on the Patriots to win. Uh, (laughs) I just do it because it's it's fun. And I, I like the thrill of it. And I really think the same element exists in cryptocurrency, obviously, and people are Definitely gambling. So, in that sense, and and that's not, I don't see that as necessarily a bad thing, but just know what you're getting into in that way. And if you really are trying to be serious about your investment choices, then you should, and you're investing a large amount of money to you, then you should probably do a lot of research about what it is you're investing in and be careful of the hot tips because we've seen a lot of cryptocurrencies even fall into the top 10 that I think don't have a working product or. Yes. May never work. There's a lot of interesting trends in the space in that way. So,
0: right on. Very good advice. Dan, before I ask the last question of this interview, I want to say thank you very much for spending time with us at Crypto 101.
1: Awesome. Thank you for having me on so much. It's awesome to be on the top podcast for Crypto currency. That's <laughs>
0: you say it like I was boasting. I w- I'm boasting a little bit.
1: <laughs> you should. That's amazing.
0: I hope that you come back on. There's a lot more topics that I would love to have you on to discuss. And I really love the conversation I had with Amy the other day. I think that Bootstrap Legal and Crypto 101 have a lot more podcasts that we can do in the future. Awesome. What three songs would you like with your interview?
1: ACDC, Back in Black van halen jump and hollow notes you make my dreams come true all
0: right why why did you pick those songs
1: um well it's funny because to me the cryptocurrency space is a little bit dry in certain ways because you're just delving into technology but as a technology person i just really feel this is the most excited exciting place to be in the world and so i just picked the songs that i think make me feel most happy and upbeat
0: all right cool man thank you very much dan for coming on the show and you have a great day and we'll talk to you soon thank you matthew all right
2: bye-bye
0: thank you very much for listening to this episode of crypto 101 before we go i want to say ApogeeCrypto.com. that's a-p-o-g-e-e crypto.com the best place to check your coins in real time crypto 101 is now linked to the coins that we have talked about on apogeecrypto.com. So if you click on Virium or Vertcoin or Litecoin or Augur or any other ones that I didn't say, and I apologize that I didn't say them, you will find our podcast on it. So that's super cool. Thanks, guys. Also, ICO 101, it's a new show from the Crypto 101 family starring Elise Lamb. Elise is gonna talk about ICOs, read the white papers, tell you if they're good, not good talks to the people that are making them so you can be more educated when thinking about investing in them. So, thanks Elise, and check it out. And lastly, Dale, Harry, the editors of these shows. Thank you very much. Oh, and not lastly, I wanna say thank you to Danny Gong. And Danny Gong is a sign language interpreter. He takes the videos from our YouTube, translates them into sign language so that people that cannot listen to this podcast Still have access to Crypto One Hundred and One information. That is the coolest community outreach thing I have ever seen. Thank you, Danny. And if you know of anybody that that can benefit from that translation, please direct them to our YouTube, and they can watch our shows. And of course, to everybody else in the Crypto One Hundred and One family, thank you very much, including everybody that listens and all the people on the groups, Twitters, Facebooks, Instagrams. Thank you very much, and we'll see you on next episode of Crypto One Hundred and One.